really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, results, great interviews, and just so much more all about the world of rugby union. So as always, I am David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. So the leagues I follow are just too numerous to mention on a week like this where I have so much to report. So why don't we just skip all the usual admin stuff and get right to this weekend's rugby. So for current updates, you know, it's been a strange week at work. That's for sure. Teachers are out left and right. Uh, the thing that keeps happening is gym teachers keep calling out. So they've asked me to sub in for phys ed classes a lot recently. Uh, so on one hand, it's not like it's difficult because, you know, they don't ask me to try to organize anything or actually play anything. But in a way, I wish they would, you know, like they basically instead say, hey, here's a bag with seven various balls and three frisbees. Try to keep the kids from killing each other. And uh it's just not that much fun. So you'll be entirely unsurprised to learn there is never a rugby ball in the bag. And my guess is uh, nobody here would recognize one anyway. So maybe I should bring in my World Cup replica ball and teach them all some basic rugby skills. Uh, oh, wait, I don't have those. He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! Yes, Isa, or at least I'm hoping it's good news. So recently I spent some time here wondering out loud what the problem is with Zebra Parma. And apparently they think they've found it. So I can only assume that they've listened to the Scrum of the Earth and realized that, you know, once you've been called out here, it's well and truly over. Uh, obviously, I, I don't actually think that. But nonetheless, Zebra Parma have fired head coach, head coach Michael Bradley. To quote here from Wales Online, which of course I'll link in the show notes, quote, Michael Bradley has been sacked as head coach of Italian club Zebra. The former Ireland international had been in charge of the United Rugby Championship side since 2017, but they have consistently struggled for wins in recent years. Zebra have lost all eight of their games in the URC and Challenge Cup so far for this season. Uh, internal quote, Zebra Rugby Club reports that Michael Bradley has been relieved of his post as head coach of the franchise, unquote, read a statement from the club. Continuing, the uh, quote, the club has taken this decision in anticipation of the technical renewal path planned for the coming seasons. The whole franchise wishes to express its utmost gratitude to Michael for the commitment and contribution made over the years and for the wonderful human and professional journey undertaken together on double quotes. So I haven't the foggiest notion what a technical renewal path is, but that path can't be any worse than the path they've been on for quite a while now. So cheers and let's hope some things start to turn around for them. It, you know, it'd be really nice to have the Italian teams, particularly this one, posing a little bit more of a threat, you know? So thoughts of the week, and I, I hope I can get through this without getting all choked up. So back in October, an absolute giant of USA rugby passed away. So in a move clearly designed to be a microcosm of how women's rugby is treated, uh, it wasn't until this very week that the New York Times managed to actually write a piece about her. Nevertheless, it's a very nice article, which of course, as always, I'll link in the show notes. And I wanted to quote from it here, quote, the 1991 Women's Rugby World Cup came down to a face-off between the brash but underdog Americans and the established England team, the product of a long British tradition in the sport. But it was the United States that won the final in Cardiff Arms Park in Wales, capturing what came to be considered the first major world championship ever played in women's rugby. Kathy Flores wore number eight for the Americans, 
handle, uh, handling a key position at the center of the field. Over her 40-year career in the sport, Flores helped bring about some of the formative events of U.S. rugby history. She captained the U USA rugby women's team in 1987 and coached the same team from 2003 to 2010, returning with it to the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2006 and 2010. And from 2014 until October 21st, when she died of colon cancer at the age of 66 in Providence, Rhode Island, she was the coach of Brown University's Division I rugby, uh, women's rugby team. The J.F. Skeffington Funeral Home in Providence reported her death in an obituary. Uh, Flora's legacy as a coach was one of inclusion. She pushed, pushed for more support for women's rugby, telling the Associated Press in 2010 that, quote, women have always wanted to be physical, but they haven't had the opportunity, unquote. She also coached the San Francisco Fog, an LGBTQ rugby team, and played for and later coached the Berkeley All Blues, a Bay Area semi-professional uh, team winning 11 league championships, 11, between 1994 and 2010. Quote, I love the sport and I want to expose as many people to it as I can, particularly young women, unquote, Flores told the Bay Area reporter in 2013. Quote, it's important for their confidence and self-esteem, unquote. Uh, continuing the quote, with college girls after playing rugby, they start thinking better of themselves and realize what they can do better, she said. You see them walk into interviews differently. Working with gay men, I see the same things. After playing a little bit of sports, there's a whole change in how they see themselves, kind of like a flower blooming, unquote. When asked about her desire to continue coaching World Cup teams, she said she was unsure given the inadequate funding. Quote, it's lip service to say the women get support when our Eagles have to do raffles and sell last World Cup, uh, last World Cup's gear just to raise money, she said. Next, it'll be bake sales. Are the men doing this too? Unquote. Women's rugby has long had to fend for itself. The 1991 World Cup was organized not by the International Rugby Board, the sports governing body, but by four players from the Richmond Women's Rugby Club in Britain. I assume that means England. Uh, they wrote to national teams, booked fields for the matches, and raised money to cover costs. The rugby board, now called World Rugby, acknowledged the legitimacy of the tournament in 2009, uh, took you a little while, when in a news release it listed the U.S. women's national team as 1991 champions. And that is the end of the quote from that article. Coach Flores, you were and are a titan of Eagles rugby, and you will be sorely missed. So that, of course, brings us to our reviews. And in the URC, all the games were on Saturday. And in case you hadn't uh, you know, looked ahead. This was actually the last round until February 25th, which kind of blindsided me, to be honest. So in all, there were just four scheduled fixtures with the South African and Italian teams idle. But then on Thursday, there were COVID cases within the Dragons camp. So that one is off as well. Uh, once again, the oddity continues. One team has cases, which in the past meant forfeit, but they're saying they're looking into dates to reschedule, which at this point is becoming an absolute mountain. Uh, Anyway, in any event, we did get three matches in, and we started with Edinburgh at home for Cardiff, and even without the crowds, it was just nice to see a Scottish club playing again. So both sides' rosters were spotted a little bit by absences, but they still had strong teams coming out for this one. I guess it had been long enough that I'd forgotten how ugly the Edinburgh color combo is. Ugh. Anyway, the home team looked completely dominant for the entire first half, and it looked like we might be in for a real spanking, but naturally, things evened out over the 80 the comms just mentioned, as I was watching, something I hadn't really heard or even thought about before, which was the stat about scrum completion rate under a particular ref. Didn't I mean, of course, they're keeping track of it. I just hadn't thought of it. So Frank Murphy, the referee for this, this particular fixture, he is setting the standard in the URC with the fewest resets, including, uh, uh, sorry, the, just some interesting side stats there. In any event, 
The Tri-Fest continued, with Edinburgh getting their bonus point try well before halftime, and this one looked over very early. But Cardiff finally got a try just before what would be the final quarter, and despite what had been total dominance, they were they were within a reasonable striking distance. However, Edinburgh quickly restarted themselves, and with only five minutes to, uh, left to go, it was pretty much out of reach. Nowhere near the blowout I had looked, uh, it looked like it was going to be early on, but then, you know, a really ugly incident right at the end where a Cardiff player got smashed into the barrier in the tri-zone and just didn't seem to get up. While the announcers seemingly with, I don't know, frozen hearts, uh, they just cheerily announced the 34-10 victory for Edinburgh as the cameras pulled away from the motionless body and the rough surrounding the pitch. Weird and ugly stuff, URC. What was up with that? Next up, of course, was Glasgow at home for Ospreys. And so... I'm not sure if they were using the fake crowd noise in the previous game and I just hadn't noticed it, but it felt glaring for this one. It, it really brought me back to a time well, a time that sucked, quite frankly. I hated it then and I hate it now. Anyway, Glasgow got out to a big early lead and they looked fairly in control before seeming to sort of take their collective foot off the gas and Ospreys seemed inclined to hang around a bit. So the visitors increasingly became their own biggest obstacle. I wonder if inexperience in the squad sort of factored really extra large tonight. Uh, anyway, approaching the final 10 minutes, Glasgow were up again by a lot. It was 31 to 12, and Ospreys sort of coughed it up with an, only a yard or two of scoring a try once again. Just obviously not their night. Gareth Anscombe, though, clearly the most valuable player on the Ospreys tonight. He got a sweet breakaway, and boy, oh boy, is it good to see him at or close to 100% again. I just feel like rugby as a sport has missed him, and... He made a beautiful little pass to Dan Evans for an easy try, but by that point, it was just too late. As if in response, Fraser Brown dotted down a lovely try only a minute or so later, and it looked well and truly over at that point. The final score at the ending was 38-19, to convincing the home side grabbing themselves a nice bonus point along the way with the victory. And for the record, that leaves Edinburgh up seven full league points over their 1872 Cup rivals with eight games played apiece. I was a little surprised to see that. Next, so Munster were at home for Ulster, and you know this looked this one looked really exciting. Obviously, when I looked at the score, it was really tight the whole way. Probably a real joy to watch, but yeah, I accidentally saw the outcome before I had a chance to watch it, so I definitely couldn't be bothered to actually check it out on the replay. Bummer, really. That you know that one had my eye way ahead of time to be sure. Anyway, it did end up with Munster getting themselves a much-needed win if you buy all the negative press surrounding them this week. I don't imagine them being very happy with the state of the offense at this point, though, that's for sure. So moving on to the Premiership, which looked really good this weekend, and uh, I hate to say it, but by comparison, maybe even better. So in the Prem, which also is going to have some time off after this round, though just only a couple of weeks for them. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. So on Friday... We did have a nice match on Friday. We had a snow day here on Friday. So Bristol versus Sale, I was just giddy that I had a, a home a game to enjoy on a nice snow day. It just doesn't get much better than that. And it turned into a super cracker of a game. A uh, little side note before I get going. Um, Wayne Barnes, lead official, he got his 250th match as lead official. What a guy. And apparently, apart from being a professional referee, he's also a barista, which is, is kind of neat. I, I guess he can, you know, make the macchiatos and stuff. Okay. I admit that was just meant to troll my listeners from the UK. Don't worry. I don't actually think he works at a Starbucks or something. So here, here in the United States, of course, we would call him a lawyer. But elsewhere in the world, they call him a banister. <laughs> 
Anyway, so after the first 20 minutes or so, I wrote, I am very happy to report that Semi Rundrandra is proving absolutely everything I said about him last week wrong. His hands look like they're made of glue. He's making selfless offloads and always looking to make the extra pass. Just so good to see. He's like a full-grown man playing against boys when he's got it all going. Uh, AJ McGinty was, of course, his usual shifty self. He is so great to watch. Just so clever and slippery. I still, I've mentioned it before, I worry that he gets himself into contact more than might be healthy, especially for somebody, you know, at his position and his size. But uh, that's part of how he plays, I suppose. So in any event, at halftime, it was 19 to 15 and a very exciting one. Bristol hadn't committed a single penalty at that stage, it's worth noting. So after about the 63rd minute, Bristol were up 25 to 15, but Lude, blink, blink, de Jager got a brilliant steal off the line out. The third one the Bears had lost today. And, you know, they just looked pumped at that point. <laughs> a little bit later, as John O'Fawa got taken off for a blood injury to be replaced by Sinkler, who'd been sitting for a while, the comms said, quote, Kyle will snub out his scar and come back in, unquote, which just really cracked me up for some reason. And wow, then, what a finish with Bristol, getting a bonus point try after the clock had already gone into the red. Just an amazing play. The home crowd was ecstatic as their boys won convincingly, 32-15 to 15 in the end with Austin Healy saying that Sale, quote, have good players, but are playing an outdated style of rugby, unquote. I wonder if other people agree with that. All in all, just a fantastic Friday match. So then on Saturday, we had uh, all three Prem matches starting at the exact same time. So naturally, I watched what I had last week picked for the match of the week or maybe even the match of the year. And holy crap, folks, it did not disappoint. I don't think I've been out of my chair and pumping my fist this much since the Malcolm Butler interception. Just what a game. What a finish. Of course, I'm referring to Harlequins at home for the team I've agreed to stop really talking about. So um, I hardly know where to begin, though. You know, First of all, let me just again tip my hat to Joe Marler. T to me, the most dominant player at his position, arguably the most dominant in the Prem, period. Not only is he at the top of his game, he puts in the full 80 week in and week out. And keep in mind... Dude literally retired two and a half or three years ago before being dragged back into duty for England heading into the 2019 Rugby World Cup. He was done. He, he'd hung it up. He was reminiscing with Hask on House of Rugby and necking pints at Guinness before Eddie Jones convinced him to come back. And here he is now, just destroying everyone in front of him. Unbelievable. So right from the start, this one was amazing. Harlequins scored first, and it honestly looked, you know, they, they had all the momentum, all the field position, all the time of possession. but you know, playing against this team, you just can never feel safe. They're so dangerous. Absolutely everything seemed to be going Quinn's way, but it was deadlocked well into the second half. The fans must have been dying a bit inside with every single mishandle and tiny bit of sloppy play. Harlequins, I gotta say, they had some very uncharacteristic mistakes from, from people who don't generally make mistakes. Uh, perhaps my, my current overall favorite player, Alex Dombrandt, he's mishandling it, he's knocking it on, he's dropping it on, he's just doing totally undombrant things. Same thing for Tyrone Green, who may have single-handedly cost his team two easy tries, and guy couldn't hit the side of a barn with his passing on the day. Now, to be fair, the conditions worsened, and worsened, and worsened, and so on. It basically became a, a complete torrent. Ugo Magna on comms described it as biblical, and at that very moment when he mentioned it, Danny Kerr could be seen attempting to gather two of every animal on the sidelines before they managed to cajole him back onto the pitch for the game. Seriously, it, it clearly became awful handling conditions. Almost every single person who had to catch or field a ball that had traveled any distance at all just fumbled it, mishandled it, as I said before. 
the people who were most reliable just started to look really suspect. So you knew it was just terrible out there. So after going down an unconverted try with, I think, about 15 minutes to go, it started to look hopeless for the home side with sloppy play after missed opportunity. But then, I guess they seem to remember, they're the champions. And late, they put on a spectacular display of rugby, just rugby skill, toughness, top-level technique, and ugh, Marcus Smith. Oh, my God. Seriously. You can't write this stuff. After they're trying to tie it, nobody would believe this if I had made it up. Marcus Smith makes a conversion by just docking it off the sort of inside-ish of the right goalpost. And it's just like at that point, the ball was like, you know what, Marcus? You are the chosen one. And it just danced inside a once-in-a-lifetime bank. No way should that have gone in. Right at the very death, Harlequins win. 14 to 12, all told. I'm getting the sweats just remembering it now. Next, we had Newcastle at home for New, uh, Northampton. And, and boy, oh boy, no notes necessary. It was a good old-fashioned ass-kicking. It was 8 to 44 for the visitors. You know, a few weeks ago, right in this very space, I, I kind of went on a little bit about how surprisingly good I thought Newcastle had been this year. So I should clarify, uh, that, that was a different Newcastle Falcons. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. A different rugby team named Newcastle Falcons. Anyway, Saracens were at home next, facing Gloucester, and I I had a hard time getting excited about this or even thinking it maybe wouldn't have a chance to be close. It just didn't seem in the cards. I mean, just looking at the series lineup, it's basically the England B team or maybe the B-plus team because there's a few extra sort of A-pluses thrown in there like, like Morrow, of course. However, if you are placing any bets based on my predictions and analysis, you are clearly homeless and in the streets by now. So things look to be going according to the script for a while. Gloucester conceded a yellow card, then only one minute later conceded another yellow card while in the process of being scored upon. So it was Saracens taking the lead to the tune of 7-5 to five and 15-13 to 13 players on the pitch. Gloucester, though, they were here to fight. They were only down 14 to 12. Boy, that's the third time we've seen 14 to 12 in the scores this week. Interesting. Uh, despite the personnel deficit, and this score was just before those cards expired, so they had to be feeling kind of positive even as the rains came in around the half hour mark. So it continued to be another sloppy but close affair. Gloucester were down only four heading into the final 10 minutes. I, I already mentioned him. Maro Otoje was his usual unstoppable force of nature self on the day. He looked especially good, especially among sort of all the loose performances going on around him. Saracens, then, they thought they'd want to turn over deep in their own territory, but on review, by the intervening TMO, it turned into a penalty for the visitors. Gloucester had a great opportunity to take the lead with about eight and a half remaining, and they did indeed take full advantage, nailing the line out, then the mall just heaved its way easily over the line for the try. With Hastings getting the extras, it was 19-22 to 22 for Gloucester, with only six, uh, six minutes and 45 seconds to go. Of course, I, I even wrote down, I feel like the Saracens will have the answer here. Uh, but then again, I'd been wrong most of the day so far. So another huge defensive play by Chris Harris. Damn, that guy is good. And Gloucester again had the ball and the air control. A penalty became three more points for Hastings, and the home team would need a converted try to win this one with about 250 seconds left to go or so. And that looked like it was going to be enough for them because the, the series, they break away for a try in the corner, they get a bonus point and perhaps a last-moment win, but Lazowski... He misses the extras to put their backs firmly against the wall. Absolute chaos. Series made a stupid forward pass when they seemed on their very last chance. But Gloucester then blew the ensuing scrum, giving the home side a free kick with the clock in the red. The comms had just mentioned 
It had been 13 years since Gloucester had a win away to Saracens, and I would have put money at that moment on the, that record staying absolutely intact. There, there was just no way that was going to change, right? Of course, that is one of the many, many reasons I don't gamble. So just to prove me wrong for the 114th time, just on that day, I think, Saracens shockingly fumbled it away in the middle of a great, promising attack, and presto, Gloucester, they got themselves an historic win. Really great effort by them today. I was quite happy to be so, so very wrong. And then we did have our two Sunday matches. So on Sunday, we started with Bath at home for Worcester. So while it wasn't exactly pretty, it did feature another fantastic finish with Bath holding on to a three-point margin right through the 82nd or even 83rd minute, denying Worcester their first ever win at the wreck, a stat that frankly just shocked me for sure. In fact, it turns out that this defeat was the closest they've ever come to winning at Bath. Before that, the margin was a six-point loss. Amazing. And that one was, uh, what did they say, 2006. It was, yeah, but losing by six is uh, 15 years ago is the closest Worcester have ever gotten to defeating Bath at the wreck. That's incredible. So this did mean Bath finally got their first win after 10 straight losses. Pretty sure it was 10. Um, you could really see what it meant to those players and the fans there as well. It was it was pretty awesome. And because it wasn't as rainy as the prior day, their pitch didn't completely deteriorate as it usually does. Just great stuff in general. Really fun to watch. And then finally, we got to find out if the Leicester Tigers would be able to continue their winning streak away at Wasps. And right off the bat, they decided, you know what, Wasps? Here's a few points for you. They gave up a penalty try, including the yellow card. So and then George Ford couldn't really get his footing for any of his kicks. So they didn't look themselves. And it was surprisingly close after the first 20 minutes. It was only 7-6 to six with the Wasps in the lead. And uh, a telling stat I noticed was the penalty count was 6-1 to one after only 18 minutes. Man, oh, man. So at halftime, the comms said, no oil painting this one, which I thought was pretty cute. And it was true. There's a couple of yellow cards, lots of territory, in particular for Wasps, with hardly anything to show for it. Um, they got no more points after that penalty try. So they went into the locker room down 7-13. to 13. Right there at the end, they managed to get Ellis Genge to sort of blow his top and boil over, and he got himself yellow carded for throwing a punch. Uh, it easily could have been red. It kind of looked like a gouge to me. Uh, it didn't seem like they wanted to spend too much time looking at it. And I wrote down, it must be really nice. For other teams to know that they have a pretty solid chance of getting the Tigers captain to just blow his stack at least once a game. So, as they were headed to the lockers, you could even see him. Oh my gosh, some obnoxious fan was no doubt shouting obnoxious crap to him. And it absolutely got to him. He stopped, he turned around, he did the, what did you just say? thing before one of his teammates had to physically move him along to get to the lockers. Maybe he's just leaning into this sort of powder keg image since he's leaving at the end of the year anyway? Maybe that's it, I don't know. Seems like a, a short fuse on that one. So right around the time he came back on, however, Wasps, they, they finally found some pace and made a couple of kicks in fairly short order to tie it up. Then with 11 and a half to go, Jimmy Gopperth made his third consecutive kick to give Wasps their first lead. And any team in the Prem's first sniff at a win versus Tigers, very late, we got five consecutive scrums. The ref was just not interested in giving a penalty, just wanted to reset, reset, reset. But it really looked like the scales were tipping more and more towards Tigers. But then, almost miraculously, Wasps, they got a penalty at the breakdown, and the place just erupted so good. An incredible, furious finish. The last minute and a half, just edge-of-your-seat madness. With the home side's defense somehow amazingly holding true. 
and the, the Lester win streak begun last June 5th is no more. This may end up being Wasp's crowning achievement of the year. Just breathless stuff. What a perfect way to bring the weekend's rugby to a close. Unbelievable. And looking back, you know, three of the six Prem features this weekend were just unbelievably good. Harlequins versus Exeter, Saracens versus Glasgow, and now this one, Wasps versus Leicester. And also even the Bristol Sale game on Friday was just lots of fun. A terrific weekend to be a fan of this league. Okay, that of course brings us to our coveted Diamond in the Ruck Award, and this week the distinction goes to Jimmy Gopperth of Wasps. Mr. Gopperth, your steady hand at the wheel, your absolute clutch kicking, your expert performance in all phases really brought your club a win for the ages, or at least for the year. To quote from The Guardian, which of course again I'll link in the show notes, quote, the 38-year-old Gopperth, ironically wanted by Lester, was another key figure expertly hammering the in the nails with three well-struck second-half penalties to hoist Wasps up to eighth and lift the prevailing mood. The club's aggregate year-end financial losses since moving to Coventry are now almost 50 million pounds. But when it comes to boosting collective morale, days such as this are absolutely priceless, unquote. Jimmy Gopperth, congratulations. You are the proud winner of this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. Please enjoy it. Okay, folks, of course, that brings us to our previews for next weekend. As I mentioned earlier, both the Prem and the URC are off next weekend so that the European competitions can get back into action. We'll see. Again, Lord knows which, which, if any of these fixtures, will actually proceed. But here is the theoretical list we have going for next weekend. In the Champions Cup on Friday the 14th, Cardiff will host Harlequins. And Cast will be at home to face Munster. On Saturday, there's a ton of action scheduled for the championship, the Champions Cup. Um, it starts with Wasps. They'll be facing Toulouse. Connacht will be in Galway for Leicester. Ospreys will be welcoming Racing 92 to Swansea.com Stadium. <laughs> I put here, represses laughter. I guess it, that part didn't work. Then, Exeter will be at home for Glasgow. La Rochelle will be looking to make mincemeat out of Bath. And Bristol are at home for Stade Francais. On Sunday the 16th, Leinster are slated to host Montpellier. Uh, Bordeaux Beglet uh, will be taking on the Scarlets. Northampton Martyrs will have, be having a home game against Ulster. And finally, Claremont will be at home for the visiting Sale Sharks. Also, of course, the Challenge Cup will continue on. On Friday, Brave will host Poe. And as that one's an all-French affair, I imagine that that one might actually go ahead. While Meanwhile, Biarritz will have a harder time figuring out how to host the Newcastle Falcons. On Saturday, Benetton will face Dragons. London Irish will have an exciting matchup with Edinburgh. Really looking forward to that one, that's for sure. Worcester will be at home for Toulon, and Perpignan will welcome Lyon. Also, keep your eyes on that rugby horizon. February 5th is not far away now. And not only does Six Nations begin on that day, so too does the 2022 MLR season, which to me will just be the best yet, hands down. Last year, they did a great job of making the games available to stream for free. And as soon as I know if that's happening again, you can be sure I will let you know here on the Scrum of the Earth. In the cold and dark of February, at least we'll have a ton of rugby to keep us warm and cozy. So last thing, speaking of MLR, if you missed my recent interview with Oliver Engelhart of my beloved Free Jacks, definitely check it out. He's an incredible guy who basically seems straight out of a James Clavell novel. Really remarkable things he had to say. Check it out. (laughs) 
Well, my friends, that's going to do it for this week. So wherever you are in the world, just thank you so much for listening and for reaching out. I hope more and more of you continue to do so. It's been fantastic. So as always, if you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter. I am at of Scrum. You can always find me at the Scrum of the Earth podcast on Instagram. And you can always just shoot me an email via the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. If you can bring yourself to leave me a nice review, that would be magic. And if you like what we're doing here, there are a couple of ways you can show your support listed in the show notes for this very episode. So once again, thank you all for coming along. To all of you across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well. Come on without